Hello again, this is Mark Griffin, Director of Customer Solutions here at Constructs. We're a team of software engineering experts founded by legendary author Steve McConnell. Here at Constructs, we believe that every software team can be more successful at delivering higher levels of business value. For the majority of the episodes over the last couple of years, we've structured the podcast around recent engagements that our consultants have delivered. As is consistent with Inspected Adapt, we are experimenting with recording the podcast before a live audience. The audience interaction allows us to inspect and adapt our conversation in real time. It worked well for the podcast around the daily, and so we thought we were on a roll and should try another one. Today, what you hear is another lightly edited extract from a YouTube live stream held in August of 2022. This discussion was centered on the software engineering practice known as backlog refinement, the idea of getting stories ready to go for a sprint team. I invited Constructs' senior fellow Earl Beatty and VP of Consulting Jenny Stewart back to the mics for this live stream. We pick up the conversation right after I asked Earl and Jenny to identify when in their careers they were first introduced to the concept. I first encountered refinement in the context of um, Scrum and Scrum teams, with it being the process of preparing work to make sure that it is ready to enter a sprint and helping to make the sprints smooth as silk and easy peasy. Um, Earl, is that where you first encountered refinement? Where did I first encounter it? So I have to admit, Jenny, I wasn't listening entirely to you. Uh, so I'll have to edit that part out <laughs> later on. But yeah, when I first encountered refinement, you know, it was interesting. When, when I first started on the Agile stuff, refinement, I mean, back in 2000, we weren't talking refinement hardly at all. No. Right? We were talking about just bringing stories into sprints or bringing work into increments. And we weren't talking about refinement. Refinement sort of grew as a more customary practice I'm thinking 11, 12, 2011. What do you think, Jenny? I seems reasonable. Yeah, seems reasonable. It seems like it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't the fives. It wasn't the eights. I think it was the tens, eleven, twelves that we started seeing. Like, we really need this tool. Well, I guess that's what I was going to say. Is is that? Re, do you think refinement came out came came about because people just had horrible inbound? stories into sprints that just that just and the team kept turning around saying what or or the team said i don't know what you want me to build i just still don't understand what's here the bottom line here was that work was coming into sprint and getting blocked by something it would come in and we'd say oh we're running a technical challenge we bring it in oh we, we we're waiting for another team's resource oh would it come in that vendor didn't supply this yet or oh would it come in and um our team is busy working on something else and so we had all this work piling up in the increment in the sprint or if if i don't know if it makes sense we should talk about this from a kanban perspective too because jenny jenny that's jenny's one you know true passion <laughs> in life um but work was piling up. And so this idea came in, how do we make sure that work flows through the sprint? I mean, if you if you, if you had to summarize refinement in its ultimate meaning, and to me, is a sense is ensuring that work flows through the sprint, that we don't build up work in progress. Does it work every time? No. But should it work far more than what we're running into before? Yes. Now, can we do the same thing in sprint planning? Sure, but we're going to spend, waste a lot of time because a lot of time it says, if you get into a sprint planning, the question comes up to like the product owner, gosh, what does the stakeholders really feel about this? And they're like, huh? And then you have to go, well, you have to go get a hold of them. But we're trying to get through sprint planning. This is a time boxed activity. We've got to end it and move into the right. sprint. Whereas if you did this a few days before, the PO has time to go off, have that conversation with the stakeholder come back and inform the team. And so we're not blocking the team's time. And I'd add a couple other kind of patterns or anti-patterns, I guess, to what Earl was seeing when there isn't enough refinement. Uh, one is you get into the sprint and again, it's blocking, right? The problem is we get blocked and, you know, it's people are kind of going, well, what did we actually want out of this? Give, wait, what are the details of what we need to build here? Um, or you get into the sprint and you realize, oh, this thing is big, like there's no way we're getting this done in a two-week sprint. And that's all stuff that you don't want to find in the middle of the sprint. That's all stuff that you want to get out of the way 
at least before you enter the sprint. And most of the time, you need enough of these conversations that you want to be doing this before you get into sprint planning. It'll just make sprint planning faster, easier, smoother if these conversations are all happening in preparation for sprint planning. Is it small enough? Is it well understood? Does it fit? Do we have no external blocking dependencies? Uh, All of these things are things that you want to be thinking about as you're getting ready, as you're readying work to, to enter a sprint. I'm going to even pile on on that because I think that's a really important point. It's the process of getting stories ready to go into a sprint. Whether you have a formal definition of ready or you have just a loose understanding among your team, there's some signs that a story is ready to go or it's not ready. And we can, one of the clearest ones, we or not one clear, but one of the things we want to make sure is that we understand it, that the requirement yep. is understood in its fullness as before we bring it in as opposed to going... Bring it in going, what is it that I really wanted? Because that, that makes planning in the, in the sprint planning really, really hard. So bringing a story to a ready state. How do you want to go about that? What do you define as ready? Well, we can talk about that as we go forward. But that's the sense what refinement is, getting stories ready. And we want to do that in small chunks because requirements work is work. And if we try to do all that work in our sessions, then the sessions start getting really long and tedious where we go off and can do some work and then come back together and share results. No, I was just going to say, so you're really talking about leveraging um, requirements practices in the small, in, in a just-in-time sense, right? I mean, you, we used to do this, I mean, as you were mentioning, in a sequential sense. You used to do it for a big chunk of work, but now you're doing it for smaller chunks of work. Shouldn't we, we, shouldn't we be better at this now? Uh-oh, got to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> you would think we would, except you would I think have we'd be to say that consistently for years now, every time I do virtual or on-site scrum training, the heavy hitter, the win thing that comes out that are people are like, if we just solve this, it'll make our life so much better, has almost universally always been insufficient or a complete lack of refinement activities. And I think Sometimes that comes down to the fact that, you know, while Scrum talks about refinement, it isn't a specific scheduled meeting. Unlike sprint planning, the review, the retrospective, there's just kind of some language about you want to refine your work. Well, Earl and I both have some recommendations for how that actually looks in practice on a team. I, for example, recommend two one-hour meetings a week for perpetuity. And if you get your refinement all done in three, you just cancel the last one. But that's a fair amount of investment, right? And sometimes people at first will be like, what? How much? And if you think about it, it's, you know, spend a little bit now for a really smooth sailing sprint. And a lot of times people will tell me all about these problems that they see in sprint planning or they see in their sprints. And I look at it and I go, those are all refinement problems, all of them. If you just fix your refinement, all of that will go away. Who's responsible for the inbound backlog items? I mean, aren't they supposed to be, in some respects, broken down and structured before they even arrive to a refinement activity? Or is that just wishful thinking? I think you need to think about two different sort of stages of refinement. One is when things first fall into the backlog. I think when they first fall in, you take a brief look at it. You give it a rough size as a small, medium, large. I like to give it a t-shirt size at that point. Um, A brief discussion about it. And just so the team sort of says, okay, we sort of get the idea of what this one's about. And then it sits there in the middle zone. At some point, the product owner is going to say, you know what? I want to invest more in this. I want to put this into, I want to build this thing. And so they start saying, let's get this ready for a sprint. And it moves up to what I conceptually think of as the high investment zone. We're going to invest a bunch of the team's time getting this into a ready state. And this means... We have to figure out what more detail what it is, make sure it's fully understood, make sure the acceptance criteria is is ready. You may even talk briefly about some acceptance tests for it, right? Saying, what do we know when it's done, i.e. the criteria in a different way? And that what are are there external dependencies or still questions that we have that we need to work on before we bring it into the sprint? There's that level investment. So we should be doing it now. Now, your other point was. This is incremental. 
And that's one of the interesting power, powers of this is that we're only investing a lot of effort into things hopefully we're going to build, but we're not unaware of the stuff in the middle. Right. Mm -hmm. So many people think of incremental requirements as, oh, I only discover what you want just before I build it. And I don't think that's true. I think refinement also means a little bit that we see a long way ahead, but we only put the massive amount of effort on that stuff that's near term. So there's a deferral of certain things just because you know that there, there's other stuff that happens in between when you get to that point that's probably going to change what you do with that anyway. So why look that for that far ahead? Yeah, have a sense for where you're going, right? You don't want to be, I think, one or two sprints ahead of me, and I have no idea where I'm going. It's good for the team right. to have a sense for here's what's coming next, and here's the big picture of where we're going. Back to what Earl was saying and what you were asking, Mark, about shouldn't it just magically happen? One of the things about refinement is there is a need for a conversation between the product owner and the team. Uh, in the backlog, you're going to have stories that are too big to fit inside of sprints, and you're going to need to find a way to decompose those to fit properly inside of a sprint. And that is in need of a conversation. If I, as a product owner, go off and do that all by myself without any input, I might find a way to decompose it that's incredibly painful for the team to actually build it in that particular way. So right. I often recommend what I call the like two-thirds, one-third pattern in refinement. So in the latter third or quarter of a refinement meeting, you're bringing in a big story and talking with the team about how you're thinking about decomposing it, working with them. Maybe you're looking at decomposition patterns and things like that and coming to agreement about how that bigger story is going to be split into small stories. Between that refinement meeting and the next, as a product owner, I'll then go write those new stories. In our next refinement meeting, that first two-thirds will be going through that detailed conversation about, is the acceptance criteria complete? Are they clear? Are they well understood? Are we missing anything? Let's re-estimate these now because they need an estimate because they've been broken apart into small stories. And so that kind of pattern of you're always talking about the next thing that you're going to be going into detail. And then the product owner has a little bit of work between the sessions to make sure that the stories are as ready as they can make it going in, I think is a, it has been a pattern that works for a lot of my teams. So they go off, I mean, this product owner might actually go off and, and, and have deeper conversations with a stakeholder about something saying, Hey, you know, we, I think we got this. I'm not sure we got this, but I, I got to confirm it. It's my job. I go offline. I do that. And then hopefully I bring something back to the team that's more, that's clearer. Yeah. And that yeah. might happen on the okay. big story, right? As we're talking about splitting it apart, the team looks at it and says, I, right. I don't understand what we're trying to do here, or this doesn't make sense. Or, Are you sure this is what's wanted? It might happen on the small stories. As Earl was talking, it might even happen as you're kind of perusing that midterm investment and somebody's sort of like, what's this or why is this here? So yeah, I mean, product owners own that clarification process for their team. Well, I think you're driving out risk to some extent. You're driving out speculation, right? People are, are are making conjectures about something, and if they don't really have the answer, and someone's making it up in the meeting, most of the time you can tell. <laughs> but so you so you send somebody away and say, you know, come on, break the tie, go go get a, cl a clearer understanding of this for me, and bring it back. Yeah, well, and and I'll even top that. I think there's three p all three members of the team or three triads of the team get homework potentially out of these refinement sessions. There's certainly the product owner who's getting the homework about going to talk to stakeholders to find out what really is going on, maybe some preferences if they're getting to that level of detail. There's the development team. If you have technical dependencies or technical questions, this will often result in a spike in their current sprint to resolve some issues in a future story for the future sprint. Is this even technically possible? And that's some time box work we'll put in there. And then there's potential work for the Scrum Master. If you have a dependency on another team or an external um, vendor of some kind to be able to deliver something so you complete that story, you can get the Scrum Master to start pushing on them and start getting some uh, commitments or something else out of that other team so that you can have confidence that when you take the story in, you can finish it during that sprint. Yep. 
And then there's also homework for the product owner to be writing some stories or clarifying stories or doing some story work. I think the only thing where Earl and I would probably disagree is my pattern would be if you uncover a large technical item that you need to do, I would be saying you put it in the upcoming sprint. So that you're always looking like one and a half to two sprints ahead of you. And my teams, I would be coaching my teams to say, you put a spike, if we're in sprint 22 refining, you put a spike into sprint 23. But Earl and I just kind of approach a little bit how we bucket the work for what teams do in sprint planning and just the general approach a tad bit differently. Right. But I think we both agree that you do the, the 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 technical analysis work before you bring in the story. You don't bring the story in, then start doing technical yep. analysis work, and then realize, whoa, our technical idea, our approach isn't going to work, and now we're stuck. We want to find that out before we commit to deliver the story in a sprint. Yep. I had a team once who had a task pattern in sprint planning and their task pattern, the very first task was spike. <laughs> so bring a story into a sprint and do a spike. And I was like, you know, from a risk mitigation perspective, we should be doing that before that work enters a sprint. If it's if it's a small question and you're really certain that you can answer it inside the sprint, I have no issue with that at all. But if it's high uncertainty, high risk that I won't necessarily have the answer, or if I get the answer, it might fundamentally change kind of the size of the work or maybe the way we decompose the work. All of that needs to be done before that work is ready to enter a sprint. But I just want to put a small caution here, though, because I've also seen the pattern where someone said, we're going to be doing basically all the work or call them spikes. We never bring the story in until it's like, do the final test. That doesn't work very well. Oh, and we got a question kind of on this topic. Yeah. All right. So the question here for our podcast listeners later on, do you put a separate story for doing the tech analysis work? Ooh, this is where Jenny and I might have some heat. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'll go I'll go take a walk for a while I'll come back I don't think I mean, we're a little different I don't think we're like east versus west kind of differences here um, you know whether or not you need kind of a, a product backlog item for the technical analysis work to me comes down to how big is that technical analysis if we have a very small this is gonna I, I think about this as small design versus big design if I have a very small design question and we're really comfortable as a team that we can answer it inside of the sprint, you can bring it into the sprint and just maybe you have a small design discussion with a whiteboard inside of the sprint. I'm not going to worry about having a spike before that. You have a big design question, a big-ish design question, a high uncertainty question, something you need to research or investigate or do a quick prototype, then a spike is going to be a good idea. And then sometimes a group I worked with once a long time ago had a big, big design question. They actually had like, we are doing an API. This is the first run of the APIs. We're not entirely sure about the design paradigms and design patterns we're going to use. That wasn't even a spike. We ended up after talking with them, finding out they needed a whole, about a half a sprint's worth of design, deep design conversations and documentation so that they had a pattern they'd reuse forever. And so we just did a sprint allocation. The next sprint, we cut the velocity in half, gave them half of the time to do the design work because uh, it was just so big. It seemed kind of silly to even put stories in the backlog for that. So right. it, it depends. And I'd say use common sense and good judgment. How about you, Earl? Yeah, so here's where I'll... Okay, I'll, Earl, I'll, tell her she's wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not wrong. I'm just different. Yeah, she's just different. She's fine. So I, the simple answer is I typically will not write a story for tech analysis work. Because one, I do not want to try to size it in points. And two, I don't want to put points on it at all. I don't want this to count to my velocity. My velocity is completing value stories for the product owner, not doing technical analysis work. Though that's important work that needs to get done. I do want the product owner to control how much is invested in this technical analysis work. 
I don't want someone doing $3,000 worth of tech analysis work that's only going to generate $1,000 worth of revenue. That's just not a good trade-off. And so I want this controlled. So what I, I tend to say is that the technical analysis work goes into a bucket of work that's in every sprint. That's my backlog refinement work. And we time box it. We say we don't spend X more than X amount of our capacity doing technical analysis work. That's just part of what we do. And when that time is used up, then we can go back to the PO and say, do you want to sacrifice some of your value stories for us to do more technical analysis? Or do you want to delay this and roll it over to the next sprint and do more technical analysis? I.e. that we're going to just keep using our bucket of time if this is important enough to you. So that cho choice can constantly be made. So that's how I, I spin it. I actually don't think we're that far apart, Earl. Yeah, I don't I think we're that in, far apart. Yeah, I put them in spikes. Um, I don't point them. I don't think you should point spikes. I think spikes should be time boxed. I think the only difference is I'm looking at putting that in the next sprint. You have the team have a bucket inside the current sprint and they can just already dip have in a place where they can that. start it right then if they wanted yep. to. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't give me heartburn if a team did that. <laughs> So, so the answer to the question is, no, we're not writing stories. Either of us are writing stories necessarily Product for it. Backlog for Jenny's items. big problem, that was, I think, a, a fluke because they really should have started this design problem much, much earlier. They discovered halfway through, it's like, holy moly, <laughs> we haven't done our homework yet. Okay, stop, reboot, do the homework. Yeah. Life happens, so neither, we'll neither Earl or I would do a story. We would do something that was a product backlog item, but not a story. So the undercurrent in all this, I think, is you don't want to have to have rework occurring, deliberate rework occurring, because you play around with something, put it aside, played around with something, and went a certain direction. It was wrong, came back. You don't want to do that, right? Whoa, whoa, oh, well, I, mean, I actually going to come somewhat disagree with that entirely. Um, one of the things okay. we do in Agile generally... Intentional, intentional versus unintentional, right. though, right? This is really That's right. We're trying to avoid right. massive unintentional rework with some intentional rework. So it's not like we want to avoid all rework. We know that we will create things that have stubs and other bits and dummy data and other things just to get this one bit working that we'll have to rip out later on. But we'll hopefully find, like in Jenny's case, like, oh, we don't know the API. We should have known it by now. Now is a good way to find that kind of stuff out with smaller set increments of discovery that, yeah, we'll get some rework. But it's intentional rather than surprise, because usually the surprise stuff is much bigger, much more scary than the intentional stuff. So you might say that this Jenny's point about speculation, driving that out, speculation would drive a bad kind of a rework, right? If you just assume something, ran off and tried to do something and realize the product owner comes back a sprint later and says, no, that's not what we were talking about. That's rework that's lost. That's rework that you could have avoided had you done a better job of, of looking at that in the first place. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the biggest thing that we see is people bring in large stories with a fair amount of ambiguity in them into sprints. And then you right. end up either with inefficient sprints because people are in the middle of the sprint trying to figure stuff out that you could have figured out earlier and would have made your sprint way more productive. Or we all make assumptions and then we find out during the sprint or at the end of the sprint that we had made different assumptions and we are not aligned and code and test cases and product owner assumptions are not all coming together. As Eric Simmons used to say, if we shine a magic flashlight over the different people, we did not get the same answer in the thought bubble. And we want the same answer in the thought bubble when we enter the sprint. My take is uh, Scrum has built in things to do that ambiguity check. Uh, I I strongly believe that the entire idea of story pointing is to force out ambiguity. It's there to make surface it. If I'm calling something an eight and you're calling it a three, that tells us we see the work entirely differently and we need to have a conversation about what we're really going to do. In one of my classes, I love to do an exercise I call food points. And I list a bunch of foods that I want people to make from pizza to a toss green salad to chicken soup. And I have them follow like a planning poker process where they take each item, they individually estimate it on a the same Fibonacci scale, one, two, three, five, eight, thirteen. 13. 
And then they have to come through and they have to come to a consensus of what they're going to do, which forces them, the people who are doing chicken soup, the people who are just opening a can and dumping it into a pot versus the people who said, no, I'm going to roast my own chicken and then boil and make my own stock. They've got to come up and decide, how are we going to do this? In a way, it forces out ambiguity. And in another way, it actually starts doing the high-level design. That is, we're all coming with the same basic development approach. We're all going to do stock. We're all going to do a can. But I can't have half my team doing you know, homemade stock and half my team doing can and think this is going to turn out okay. So I, I think we could sum up this this section of the conversation in, uh, in terms of this idea of the de- definition of ready, right? I mean, all these things we're talking about is is prep. You, you, you know, you, you're you don't want to enter your sprint with the, these things not being correct. Is that the is that a right way to say it? Yeah, I, and the thing I think we haven't touched on yet is just we've kind of intimated how far you do this in advance. And the rule of thumb I typically give teams is you want very, very fine grain, small, clear, ready to fit inside of a sprint stories or work for like one and a half to two sprints ahead of you, right? So this is a rolling process you're doing all the time. I'm not trying to get 18 sprints ahead of myself in this very fine-grained work uh, conversations that we're having. Okay, makes sense. It really brings up the whole concept of a definition of writing, which is really part, to me, hand-in-hand with refinement these days. Um, And you can treat that to different levels as as a quality gate, if you will. That is, they have to have a certain level of quality before you allow to proceed. Now, do you want to be heavy-handed with that gate or use it as a light sort of reference, double check, sanity check? I think that's up to the team and how it works for the team. But you should have some criteria on that list that you're sort of judging the stories or the PBIs that you have. Are they ready to go in? And I think there's a handful that make sense here. I like to say, first of all, does it actually fit in a sprint? I have to have pretty good confidence that it fits. And then because it's fit, then I have to understand the acceptance criteria. Number two, the acceptance criteria. Three, I want to then then size it. This is where I size the story points. This is where I might differ with Jane a little bit. She might size it a bit earlier. I only size it after I've decided it's fit and I've got the acceptance criteria. Because if I don't know the quality dial that you're trying to set, I really don't know how big it is. I think dependencies have to be identified and have a known resolution. Whether that is now or sometime in the future, I have to know it and understand it. And those dependencies include both technical dependencies, resource dependencies, and understanding dependencies. Do I need a wireframe before we could pull this in? Do I need a certain resource or like a DBA available? Those have to be all resolved. And the team has to have general belief they can get it done. So that's basically my list. Is this a hard and fast rule that you must have all these down and dirty? No, the team, I think, can decide. But I think it's worth thinking about and reviewing that before you allow a story to go forward. Well, it's kind of interesting, Earl. I was actually doing some Kanban work with a client earlier this morning. And the thing that's fascinating me about Kanban is in each of our stages, we have exit criteria. And almost universally, when it's working with a software team, there is some analysis kind of stage. It's analysis, requirements, discovery, something. And in Kanban, you need exit criteria at that stage. Kanban is going to say, thou shall have exit criteria. And by the way, if you set up exit criteria for an analysis column in Kanban, it looks awfully like the kinds of stuff you would put into a Scrum definition of ready. I've seen people say, I hate definitions of ready because you're adding unnecessary gates to stuff. And I'm like, okay, well... Do you want you here's the trade-off, right? Because our goal is to have flow through the, the sprint. That's our goal. We don't want to have work piling up on the sprint where we have work in progress, because we know that work in progress is generally evil. So we want to avoid that at all costs. So <laughs> how do we keep it flowing? Don't let it get too bad. Now, that's why I say let the team decide the level of intensity they want to do with that DOR. If it's flowing fine, relax, right? If you're finding you're getting work in progress, you might want to up that definition a little bit and get a little more serious about if you're saying things stranded mid sprint because things you said, oh, we should have known this ahead of time. And it's funny, I usually tell teams it's an optional. If you want it, we'll set it up. And I would say at least 70%, maybe more of the teams I work with are like, yes, we would like that. And we're looking at, you know, three to five line items. 
if this thing's 20 line items, forget it. It's like yeah. having a 20 line item definition of done. You've gone way too far. It's way too fine grained. The teams are going to ignore it because it's too complicated. So it should be the kind of what are the things that bite you in your sprints that you want to remember to do before stuff enters the sprints? What can go wrong in terms of how you use this this tool or in terms of the, the rigor that you apply it or in terms of you know, how deep you go into the weeds. What, what are some examples of things that you guys have seen working with clients where you just have to come in and fluff the blanket and say, wait, 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 try this. Different. This is a different way. Well, I'd say the first thing that goes wrong is not doing it. <laughs> so do you have uh, regularly scheduled yeah. refining meetings? Are your sprints going smooth? Once you have them in place, I'd say the biggest thing that I see is there can be a tendency to get into the weeds a little too much in the refinement meetings. Technical people like to be technical. They like to talk about technical things. Uh, when I facilitate this for clients when I'm coaching or when I'm talking to scrum masters, I always say, let the teams talk a little bit, but if you let them go forever, they'll go off into design land way longer than you need for refinement. Especially when you're pointing, as Earl was kind of saying, that often requires a little bit of a conversation. And so I, one of the things I use a lot with teams is, do you need to understand that now to point this? And they'll say, yes, right. and I'll let them talk a little bit longer. And then they'll say, no, we can go ahead and point it. Okay, well, then let's just kind of maybe we note that down in the PBI. Or if people have been talking for a long time and they think they need it now, now is where we maybe ask somebody to do a little bit of legwork from a technical perspective between now and our next refinement meeting. Because we do not want to spend 25 minutes in a deep technical conversation in refinement. It's the wrong meeting for that. We have sprint planning coming up for that. And this is one of the primary jobs of the scrum master often is to watch the nature of the conversation. Are they, are they trying to do the work of sprint planning too soon? We're just trying to get this ready for sprint planning, not do sprint planning. Do we have the similar design approach? Are we know that we're, this is going to be a, my, my chicken soup one, a stock version <laughs> rather than a canned version? That's the level of detail we need at this point. We don't need to know who's going to chop which vegetables, what exactly every vegetable is going to be, its certain diameter size, how long we're going to boil the stock. We don't need to know that yet. But we do need to know that's our general approach. I'd say another really common refinement anti-pattern I see is the way that people decompose the work. So we bring a story into refinement. We know it is too big to fit in a sprint. And so we say, how about we take this story and we divide it into our components? Maybe, for example, we do a database story, an ETL story, and a UI story, or an API story and a UI story. We have now just taken something, hopefully, that was going to provide some business value and decomposed it into something where we need all three of those sub, I wouldn't even call them stories anymore, they're PBIs. And we need all three of those before we have anything of value. And instead, I want the team looking at that and trying to decompose it into three smaller stories that are vertical slices that include the different components of the system and provide me value. Even if that initial story you do is like, it's the shell of a screen with one drop-down button that gets one piece of data out of a pre-populated field in the database. I don't care. I want this thing wiggling and working. And I think that often stems from when the team first encounters it, they see what the product owner brought in, which is often sometimes a feature. And when I mean feature, I mean a technical implementation of some kind that's doing something valuable for someone out in the world, but we have no idea what that is. I'm working with a team right now that has had decades of, hey, we want this feature. Well, their tool, the thing that they're working on, has basically four primary functions. Within that primary function, there's lots of variations. It's a report generation analysis tool. So it produces these four or five basic reports. And every time you produce one of these reports, you can set a dozen different variables for various things. So there's lots of different variations of the report, but it's one report. And all the features they've been building over the years just make that report better. But it's the same report. So they come in and talk about the features, and they say, well, how do you break this down? Well, we can't break the feature down hardly. All the feature is the feature. 
but you could break it down by the different ways people run the reports and say, okay, the feature now works for this variation of the report. Now the feature works for this variation report. But they never push back. They keep saying, oh, we just have to build the new feature. And so when it comes in as a feature and the teams latch onto it because they are technical and they go, well, I, that sounds like a technical thing I can build. Then they have a really hard time breaking it down because the feature is the feature. And then they tend to do what Jenny says, okay, we'll break it down by architectural components because we could at least figure that out. It's a technical thing. Yeah. We could break it down by those technical <laughs> parts. We could do that. As opposed to saying, how do we create these vertical slices Jenny's talking about that have maybe not the entire value, not a releasable amount of a value, but have a sliver of the value that is completely exercising the architectural stack. And sometimes I've actually seen that teams really want to try that more vertical slicing approach and they bring a story to me and I look at the story and I talk to them about it and I go, the decision that you made earlier with the feature or epic that you were looking at how you decomposed that has actually made it so this story can't be decomposed in a vertical slice way. We actually have to back up back to the epic and rethink about how they sliced that so that we can slice that into kind of big stories underneath the epic that are vertical slices that we can then slice down into smaller vertical slices. So sometimes you have to actually go back a couple of steps and change what you're doing early on. And I think that's kind of what Earl was getting at. I think, you know, Jenny and I just were working with a client that had that in spades, that they really needed to understand the epics that were driving these smaller stories in their backlog. Yeah. And they didn't understand it. In fact, they couldn't even articulate to us what they were. <laughs> and if you can't articulate off the top of your head what are the major epics that's driving this thing, you're not going to have a very good sense of well, running the project overall, but certainly not refinement because refinement's going to be muddled. Because what happens on a lot of those major epics is that you've already made decisions that are going to impact these smaller stories, especially in the area of your quality attributes kind of thing, like overall speed or performance or reliability or maintainability. Those live typically on the epics and they inform all the stories underneath them. They set that quality dial kind of thing I'm talking about. And if you don't understand the quality dial, you certainly can't size it well, and you can't really talk articulately about how we're going to break this thing apart. What do you mean it needs to work in uh, one second for 100,000 people? I thought it needed to work for 10,000 people yeah. and take two minutes. <laughs> That's the next release. Yeah. yeah. Would it be useful to use an analogy that you you can build muscle memory, meaning that if you do this enough, you begin to anticipate the issues that you guys are both talking about, that these things become something that, yeah, we have some history with that, that we, we, we chewed on that before. This is what we had to do to resolve it last time. So yeah, that the bottom line is you got to do this enough to get to that point of proficiency. You, you think so, but I, I, you know, this is something I'm not quite sold on. I mean, because what we're talking about here is, is simply requirements problems in a way, right? How do we understand requirements, how we decompose requirements? This has been, a tough nut for years and years and years and years, long before Agile, many conferences. How do you do requirements has been a perennial problem. Agile at least gives us the chance to do it in smaller batches. And, and so if we screw up, we screwed up less. Rather than screwing up a one big SRS, we screw up a little bit. And then we could correct those things cheaper because there isn't so much of it that we screwed up on. So is there muscle right. memory? I think it's one of those things like piano or any kind of skill that you have to have probably a smaller set of people. This is where the benefits of a good PO really come in. So a smaller set of people who just practice this over and over and over again. So yeah, is there muscle memory? Sure. But it's not of the entire team, I don't think, because I don't think they're that interested. Mm -hmm. I think it is muscle memory or at least practice, practice, practice by a smaller group. And this is why if you say, well, we're going to rotate the PO, or we're going to rotate it's like, Oh, really? No one's going to get the practice they really need? Okay. Or we don't have a PO. That's another great one, right? We just let whoever's coming in do it. Okay, who's who's going to be your person that builds up this skill set? Because it is, in many ways, yeah, a skill set. Yeah, do that. I also think understanding things like story splitting patterns and being good at helping teams break stories apart, a scrum master should also understand these practices and have these skills. 
I mean, maybe if you're just starting out on your Scrum Master journey, it's not the first thing you do, but certainly as you're starting to get a more or expertise as a Scrum Master, being able to really help the team and help the product owner do this. So both of those roles, I think, should understand things like story splitting patterns. They should understand technology enough to be able to help a team um, and understand technology enough to know when to sort of push back on a team. I don't know how many teams I've worked with and they're like, well, we couldn't possibly do it that way. I'm like, well, let's give it a whirl and try. And shockingly, I don't know what they're working on, but simply through some questions and asking them to think about how do I decompose it? And this is especially the case in decomposing it into vertical slices. Having them think through that process, it's it's amazing to me how good they can get at it. And, and pretty quickly, but there is also a little bit of they're really unused to doing it that way often. So when teams have been doing component-based splitting for a long time, I do think it takes a couple of sprints to get pretty comfortable doing it and it can be easy to kind of relapse and you need product owners and scrum masters kind of helping you continue to think in that more value-based vertical slice approach. And you were asking about failure modes or things that go wrong and I remember Jenny telling me the story of one of her teams that said yeah we do backlog refinement and she said oh really? She said yeah it's a three-hour meeting right before sprint planning. (laughs) No. You don't have time to do the homework. You're really not gearing up and everyone's going to be burned out by the time of sprint planning. And that's going to end up being sprint planning and you just lunged it or something. That's the one big anti-pattern is we have one and only one session and it's right before sprint planning or the afternoon before sprint planning happens the next morning. Give yourself at least a couple of sessions Give yourself a little breathing room to get stuff done so that you can make sure you really are, again, risk mitigation. This is all about making sure the work is really prepared so that sprint planning is easy and the sprint is smooth. We're hitting on stories of some of the companies you guys have worked with. Jenny, you had one I think you talked about where the initial work that the team was doing was decomposing by by individual skills, Yep. by the skill set on the team. And then... They went the other way, and so what? Talk about that. Talk about that one. That was that was an interesting one. I thought. Yeah, it was interesting. So historically, they'd been decomposing by components, and they'd been exposed actually to another instructor at Constructs who they had heard about more swarming, more people working stories together. And by the time I came back around, what they had done is they had said, instead of these small stories assigned to individual people, we now have these really big stories that take like a third or a half of the sprint, but everybody can work on them. And so one of the things I worked with them was, let's go back to those smaller stories again, but this time let's get them vertically sliced instead. So you'd you'd gone to this point where you're working together, but these stories are now big. And the problem with big stories, if you have a story that takes half of a sprint, if you miss, you miss big. Or heaven forbid, I was with a group a long time ago and I said, so how many stories on average do you bring into a sprint? And they said, one. And I said, what? (laughs) And they said, that's not normal. And I said, no. <laughs> it's more like drag that in as opposed to bring it in. It's like, like if you're you, dragging this. Yeah. Well, and if you yeah. miss, right, you're going to get all of your velocity or none of your velocity, right? There's there's no risk mitigation going on there at all. Binary agile. Yeah. <laughs> Earl, t- uh, you're, you're big on this value-based approach to a lot of the stuff you do in requirements. Tell me a, little, tell me a story about one of your clients that might, might kind of go down that path. When you start thinking about how to break things apart, I, I challenge them to try to often think in terms of workflows. Someone actually interacting with your product to get something done, whether that is a human being or another system. Someone's requesting stuff or giving you stuff, and there's a reason why they're doing it. They're not doing it for sport. They're not doing it for fun. Let's just take a a sensor going to a firmware asking a sensor, what is your current state, right? I need to know your state. That's a transaction. That's a workflow. We could talk about that. And then we could start thinking about, okay, what's all the variations of that workflow? Now, I've liked to call those value paths. For example, let's say that you are working with a banking system and you want to get money out of the bank. 
well, okay, what are the different ways we can get money out of the bank? I can get money out of the bank by writing a check. I can get money out of the bank by going to a cash machine. And even at the cash machine, I can choose different accounts. I can choose different amounts. Every variation of that process is one you particular can rob the flow. Bank. I can rob yeah. the bank. I can I can take your cash card and say, oh, I know his pin. Look at me. I'm rich now, right? I mean, there's right. there's all these variations, but each each one particular scenario um, and that's a technical term and requirements is the scenario. If you're familiar with that, that's just one particular way it could happen. Each one is mm-hmm. something that we could potentially build as a slice and stubbing out all the rest of it so that we could learn something that we could better inform as we build out the other slices. So when I was working with this one client, they were going to build things out in these architectural layers. And I, and we worked with them and we said, okay, let's go through, analyze your interactions, who interacts with your product. And this was a big machine for testing for various diseases. And we started saying, okay, here's the lab technician. They want to put in a sample. They want to get a result. That's the basic case. That was it. But there's different kinds of samples. There's different kinds of tests. Each one of those form different threads. We could do the startup routine as its own little thing because it wants to start up. That was that was a separate standalone transaction that had a beginning and end and was somewhat independent. And so we found three or four or five different ways we could start it up. All these were threads that we could start building these vertical slices from. And each one of those, each thread itself, was a way to achieve what Jenny might call that epic value, that bigger picture story about what's really important. And this is not the only thread we're going to build, but it's one of them. And it helps us learn and go forward. So we got them to define these, and we called them value paths. But we got them to define these value paths, and then they were starting to organize their work. They could say, you know what? This value path is more valuable to us to build at this point than this other value path. And we could start prioritizing that work. Because that's what's also happening. We haven't talked about that in all refinement, is the prioritization. Which one goes in next? Now, we've made sort of default assumption by moving things into where they're getting ready. We've already prioritized enough to say, yeah, I want to work on these pretty soon. But what makes that decision? It should be something like, hmm, this value path, this thing that represents is more valuable to build than this next one. I'll get a better ROI. Because what the product owner is basically doing every time is saying, is the investment of this team's time in the next sprint worth it? They have to make that decision every sprint. I need to get the most out of this team as possible. Yep. And I will say that Earl's point about if you start at like the project or product level, and decompose that into architectural layers, you are lost for being able to do the the, the value-based decomposition inside of refinement. That ship sailed, the horse is out of the barn, whatever analogy we want to use. <laughs> you got to start at the top in thinking about how to do value-based work, and then it'll flow into this detailed refinement ahead of the sprint. And I've had to back teams up all the way back up to like the marquee features or the epics and reorganize things. Not a ton of time, but enough times I'd say that that's something to kind of recognize. If you're really struggling at making that transition in the story work that you're doing, in the sprints right in front of the in the refinement right in front of the sprints, it may be you do have to go back upstream and sometimes back upstream a fair ways to rethink about how the work's getting packaged at the front. I will tell you there's one type of work that I almost never refine and those are defects. If someone has a defect, I say, well, that's a defect. It's, and we've decided as a group, we're just assigned this a time box of some kind, whether it's a point value or amount of effort and says, okay, that's in the queue. I actually give, say, I, my rule of thumb is give every defect a 13. Yeah, some defects will be solved quickly. And some defects will take two and a half sprints to solve because that's just the nature of that defect. On the average, it'll work out because velocity is a running average. And so as long as we get enough of them flowing through, the running average will fix all the errors of any individual estimation error on a defect. But it allows us to say, hey, I've reserved the biggest chunk of time that I have in my sprint for this defect, if it works quickly, I'll pull more things off because I should have one or two sprints of ready stories that I can pull off or ready backlog items, including more defects. I can pull one of those off. And if it takes the entire amount of I'm willing to time box it, I can go back to the stakeholder or the PO and say, do you want to invest more time in this? Or do you think it's like, well, no, if I invest more time in this, this is actually negative ROI now. And if we could have fixed it, great. If we can't, I don't think I right. want to deal with this because I'm going to spend more fixing it than I'm going to get in goodwill 
new sales, return, revise customers or something like that. So no, but we got to give the PO that choice. Um, interestingly, I'm a big yeah. fan of not story pointing defects at all, right? Because if you think of velocity as being your rate of value delivery, fixing a defects is, is value restoration, not value creation. And so I always tell teams that, you know, we need some patterns that we can put in place to make sure that we're doing a reasonable job of making planning assumptions as we bring defects in. But I think Earl and I maybe sing a little bit of a different tune in terms of to point or not to point. Ultimately, what I end up saying to organizations is make sure you're consistent across your organization. I would sing the don't point them song or Earl might sing the point them song. But, but for the same forbid, points every time. Yeah, but for heaven forbid, at least, <laughs> whatever you decide to do, be consistent in what you decide to do. But don't try to refine. Don't do all the work of finding the defect in terms of creating lots of... I had one team um, that would take a defect in and then they would create spike after spike as they researched what was the root cause of the defect, which is basically 99% of the work of a defect is finding its root cause. Once you find it, usually fixing it isn't necessarily as big of a problem as figuring out what's really causing it. Right. They would spend spike after spike. It's like, no, you've done all the work. The work is discovering and figuring out what it is. And then if it's too big, you can write a new story saying, okay, we actually discovered what caused, and that would cause us to rewrite half the app. Do you want us to do that? But if it's like most defects, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, we see what's going on here. We just need to change this a little bit, and boom, it's going to start working again. I'd say that's usually true. I've had a few teams where like 75% of the work they were doing was defect work. I mean, poor teams, right? That's a horrible place to be in. We actually put a whole process in place about a research phase where they could actually do some level of investigation. And it was time boxed, I think, as you were saying, like in each sprint had a research time box that the team would spend trying to figure out what the root causes were so that they could get their sprints more predictable. Because, because their sprints were mostly defects, they were completely unpredictable. And the organization was having a hard time saying to people things like, it's going to be fixed in this sprint. So I do think there's a little bit of like situational variation there, Earl, but I'm with you, right? In general, if you're a feature team, you're mostly doing feature development. You don't want to overspend in preparation work getting ready for sprints. The idea of technical debt. You might make, like Earl, you were saying, you spend some energy trying to figure out a defect and realize, oh my God, this is like a platform-wide issue that we didn't even think about. We're not going to fix it. It's it goes into this bucket called technical debt. But at some point in time, you got to pay the man. That has to get resolved downstream somewhere. A technical debt is in there. Is is there is there a a use for refinement when you talk about technical debt? Now you got another sore point between Jenny and I. <laughs> Maybe <Ooh>. we'll see. <laughs> I'm gonna anticipate that Jenny says she wants to create a PBI for that and put it on the backlog and let the product owner sort of prioritize it along with the other work. Yes, assuming that my product owner is actually a good product owner and will yeah. service some amount of their technical debt. <sighs> If they're not, then... <laughs> I advise keeping a separate technical debt backlog. I mean, you could keep it in the same physical store, but you put a different attribute on it. And I say the team, you could have levy a 10% or whatever percentage tax you want, saying so much of our capacity reserve for working on things that make us feel better about working in this area, like fixing that thing that's bugging the heck out of us. Given that, then they just have this queue of work and I don't refine it. I don't size it. I say, is that the next most important thing to work on? Yes. Okay, start working on it. When you've used up your capacity, stop. You pick it up on the next sprint because you've decided that's the most important thing to work on, and then stop when you've used up your capacity. And that that's how you define it. If you need more capacity because it's really big, then you negotiate. Instead of 10%, we want 15% of our capacity to work on our, our own queue. So I don't put those to the refinement. The only thing I want the product owner worrying about is their value-added stories. And here's where the defects, I think, are, are restoring, as Jenny was saying, a restorative value, right? We, we thought we had this value. We obviously don't because we're not meeting some criterion of some kind because we have a defect levied against it and we're going to restore it. But I want the product owner focused only on that, not what we're going to do to fix technical debt or build up our infrastructure or refine our DevOps pipeline or something like that. 
And I'm going to say that generally I'd like to see technical debt in the backlog. I'd like to see the product owner relying on the team to help decide, you know, which is the most important thing to address. I wouldn't refine it. It may need a technical conversation. It doesn't need refinement. It's not about refinement the way that refinement's meant for for sprints. If you had a situation where the team was just never getting the chance to work on the engine, and if we used Earl's pattern, they would have a chance to work on the engine, I would be like, go for it. Because we need some amount of technical debt addressment. We need some amount of infrastructure work. We need to be working on the engines over time. And that's got to get addressed in some fashion. What about the idea of something that the team realizes from a, is a technical debt that they've been carrying for a long time? It might be a database issue or it might be you know, some API issue that, that, that they've cobbled along and it works fine. And to actually properly fix it is a, is a heavy lift. And to your point, Earl, it might not represent value to the sales channel at all. It's just something the team is tired of dealing with. What about investing in that kind of thing? Is there another way of thinking about that from the refinement perspective where it makes sense to put some energy in it because of that? I don't think we're talking about refinement anymore. We're, we're talking about the ROI for addressing technical debt, right? And, and yeah, I mean, there's lots of debt running around in systems that people would like to fix, but it's not painful enough or expensive enough to warrant the cost of actually fixing it. I'll give you a sort of maybe example where are you refining? Maybe, right? So I've got a client I'm working with and they wanted to get to a current version of .NET. They're on a very old version of .NET. It's hard. I don't think it's supported by Microsoft anymore. They want to get on a current version so it's supported. They can actually get talent to help them, all that kind of stuff. Well, mm-hmm. you just don't rev the version. You might break 80, 90% of what's going on in the system right now. So one, you need to get that budget as its own little project. It has to have a focus in a project. But then I might still use some refinement to start saying, okay, how are we going to really build it back up? I don't want to build it in architectural layers. I want to go back to those value paths and say, okay, what's the most important thing our tool should be doing? Get that working on the new .NET as quickly as possible. Get the next most important thing, then working on .NET. Then the next most important thing, working on .NET. Do it that way. So one, we always know that as we're moving up, going forward, that part of the system is actually working on the new .NET, even if we had to stub things out and make some things not work as well as possible until we get a little further along. And it gives visibility, because one of the things that kills these kind of projects is a lack of visibility of the stakeholders. Jenny and I can talk about the number of times we've gone to a client in the third or fourth year of a one-year project to do an uh, infrastructure-type upgrade. They always schedule for a year Next gen, right? The next gen, whatever. And they're in their third or fourth year and they schedule it for a year, maybe a year and a half. And they're like, how do we get this thing to stop? <laughs> right? And my answer is usually the same. It's like, okay, here's what we, we, we cover that. And that's a different topic. Maybe that's a good topic for how do you stop the infra- next gen project from going on for freaking ever? But one of the <laughs> tricks is build it back up in value layers as opposed to yeah. architectural layers. And I'd say, Earl, we're back to that when you started the work effort thing. When you started the work effort, did you do it in value paths? So even if you end up for some reason, right, some of these things, I had a client I was working with a long time ago, and it was replacing Silverlight. And there was a certain day where it was just going to end. If they didn't take a path of what's the most important things our users use, then if it ended and they weren't 100% done, they would run the risk of not being able to release anything, where instead, if you build it up in value paths, you can release something, it'll provide uh, support for the most important things your clients do, and then there'll be a whole set of things that people are like, well, I can't do blah. And it's like, yeah, I know, <laughs> we kind of ran out of time. Here are the dot releases that are going to come out, but at least from a risk we'll mitigation perspective, right. you know you can release something and you know you're on the path. I guess I would say it's not really refinement in my mind, because if you don't start out that work properly... I mean, you can re-course correct halfway through, but it's painful and it's hard and you've already maybe built a lot of stuff that wasn't high value in Earl's value path approach. And so, yeah, I think starting that from a value path approach at the beginning, yeah, I'd be saying it's probably a different topic. 
Well, I think we've I think we've beat up the inspection side of this equation pretty hard. So, why don't we skip really briefly to the to the adapt side of this stuff? And one one of the things that you know we've gone this entire conversation without saying the c word COVID, but you know during during COVID we we have we certainly has exacerbated this notion of distributed workforce to, almost to the nth degree. And so, how does this notion of refinement work? in zoom world or in, in online world is it i mean are there big sacrifices are there big changes that happen are people really struggling with it or is, is it has it worked okay since no one was doing it very well i can't say that it's been <laughs> impacted by covid much at all it's like well okay actually i don't think i don't think the distributed nature of this is actually harmed it in fact i think it might have actually helped kind of potential to help it a little bit the ability to get together in some ways is enhanced during COVID. That is that we had ability to quickly go in, have a short session and get back out and not have to spend the time walking between buildings or gathering the people together. We could be more focused in executing on that. But generally, you know, I, I haven't seen a lot of impact from the COVID side of this. I would say the only thing I've seen is, you know, a number of years ago, Earl said to me, I think that if a team has any member who's remote, the whole team should operate as if it's remote. And when we were back in the office, I would see a fair number of teams where there'd be a whole bunch of people in the room and a few people on the phone. And in the refinement meetings, who gets preferential treatment in the conversation? The people in the room. If we're all on Zoom... We're all on equal footing. I think we're at, if anybody's remote, we're all remote. And now we're all remote, even if we all used to be in the office together. We all kind of have equal footing. The focus tends to be, the product owner tends to have their hands on the keyboard, bringing up stories inside of whatever tool that you're using, talking through them, maybe making quick clarifications, jotting down notes for bigger things. Yeah, I don't think it's made any difference at all. The the anti-patterns and the issues that we see exist regardless of whether or not we're distributed or not. And we've already kind of hit 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 the poor product owner hard like like <laughs> people always do in in agile anyway, but having a really good person in that role become even more important now because, you know, a crappy product owner in an office environment, someone can compensate for that person by by running around behind them unfortunately. But in, in a Zoom session and whatnot, where someone dedicates that activity, if that person is not particularly strong, does it is it worse in, a, in, a, in, in that kind of environment? I haven't seen any evidence one way or the other. You know, one suspect that it probably might be, uh, just because it is easier to have that sort of side glance at someone else and go, really? Right. And, and get that, uh, <laughs> right. And be able to compensate rather in the Zoom is where, where they dominate. Uh, but again, the practice has been pretty poorly implemented generally what we, I've seen. And so it's still poorly implemented even in Zoom. To me, the bigger adaption issue is scaling. To me, that's the big one because what I need now is not just a good product owner who can do this work, but I have to have this the hierarchy of sort of product owners and whether they call them chief product owners or product management or solution architects. They have to be able to do this work at abstraction levels. And my understanding is that most people don't seem to do abstraction levels very well either. That is, they stay on their lane where the product owner should be refining things for the next sprint. A release train engineer, well, that's actually the Scrum Master, the product manager, I think, in safe at that level, needs to be able to separate different kinds of epics out, but stay at that level of abstraction, not get down in the weeds that the PO is going to do later on as they do the PI planning kind of thing. So this is something that is really hard for organizations to do well because they don't understand and don't implement levels of abstraction very well. And I think it's also probably starting to get away from refinement. If you think about refinement being the activity of getting product backlog items, usually stories, really clear, small, well understood and ready to work for the team for the one and a half, two sprints ahead of them. You can do that practice great on one team, but if you're now 20 teams, we need to start talking about things like how is the overall capability or epic or value path being decomposed, prioritized, and fed to all of those teams. I think that's its own topic. 
maybe our next podcast ought to be some of the scaling practices that are out there that kind of build upon all my individual teams work really well. Now, how do I make this all sing when I've got 10, 15, 20 of these teams working together or more? Right. You say that every podcast, Jenny. We should have a oh, scaling okay. one. We need a parking lot. <laughs> we need to point out that this is not a practice necessarily that scales this like this. It's pretty unique to the team level. When you start talking, so I'm doing something work about across five or six teams, it's a different kind of work to a certain degree. Yep. We're going to have a whole different kind of workflow there, a different idea of what done or ready looks like to be able to go to the next level. So different I don't people think as yeah. participating, yeah. Different, different decisions people. being made. This is not one you can just sort of throw the same practice at the next level up and say, just do it at a different level, right? We have to really think about it differently. Yep. Earl, I agree. <laughs> there you go. So all right. We've got to close this out here. I think we've we've been beating this horse pretty hard. Earl, give me the top two or three things you want people to take away from this conversation in the last bit. Well, I, I can even get it down to the my most important idea is that backlog refinement's primary purpose is to make sure work flows through your sprint. You can do as much of it or as little of it that takes necessary to workflow. The other second thing is that you need to keep a small amount of work ready so you never starve the team. They might surprise you. They might just rocket right through the set of things they thought they do in the sprint because they were just having a grand day. You want to be able to shove more work in right away. So you need to have a stable of work, a runway. I think some people, I think Jenny likes the term runway a little bit, of a sprint, two sprints worth of stuff out there so they can keep going on that. And that's going to require some idea of what ready means to you. So you have to figure out whether you have a formal definition ready or you have just an understanding among the team. What does ready mean? And you can adjust that based upon how work is flowing through your team. Perfect. Jenny, your turn. I would say, please, 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 if you've got any issues in sprint planning or in your sprints being bumpy and feeling like they're not working very well, if you're not doing refinement, put scheduled refinement meetings on your calendar. The biggest problem I see in teams over and over and over again is they bring in work that's too big and not well enough understood. And if you can solve that problem through refinement, which I call the secret sauce of Scrum, then everything else gets easier and everybody kind of breathes a sigh of relief because we have now oiled the wheels of Scrum and all of a sudden the engine just purrs and hums. Perfect. And I'll be the shameless self-promotion one since I'm sitting here in the middle with the sales hat on. And I'll say, if you have heard something that is in your head that you have listened to this and said, you know what, we need a lot of help and we're not getting it done on our own, reach out and call us. Just just reach out and talk to us. You know, you can hit us at comments at constructs.com and we'll have somebody give you a chat and see whether there's some specific things we might have uh, that we can give some guidance for. So that's my shameless self-promotion. there you have it. Lots of useful takeaways that hopefully you've found to be valuable, either as reminders or as new ideas to use for your own refinement practices. I think the live participation in this session provided us some very insightful questions and comments during that event. And by the way, you too can join our future live stream style podcasts and participate in the same way via the comments chat. Be sure to be on the Constructs mailing list for this and other news from Constructs in general. If you enjoyed this style of episode, feel free to give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you normally find us. If you have comments or like to talk to one of our practitioners, or you have ideas for a future podcast, reach out via email using comments at constructs.com. Again, that's comments at constructs.com. We'd love to hear from you. Be sure to tune in again for another episode of Inspect and Adapt, the Constructs podcast. Until then, this has been Mark Griffin as your host and Earl Beatty as participant, audio hack, and aspiring producer. Talk to you again soon, everybody, and have a great next sprint. Mm-hmm.